This evening I'd like to take one of these questions which has been offered which says, how long does it take and how much effort does one need to make for one's default mode of thinking to go from obsessive thinking to having more control over one's thoughts? The aspect of this question that I'd like to uh, consider together this evening is what appears to me, anyway, to be an assumption that this spiritual path, this journey, is predictable and that it somehow we can expect it to unfold uh, according to our preferences. And this really is not how it works. And it's important that we know this isn't how it works because if we start to encounter <clears throat> some of the unexpected, as we're bound to do on this journey, we might say or think or assume something's going wrong. So what's wiser is to prepare ourselves for anything and everything, to expect the unexpected, to be prepared for the unimagined. And whilst it's reasonable that we, if we recognise, for instance, that you know, some effort made in formal meditation, the cultivation of mindfulness and... and uh, collectedness of attention uh, is bringing some benefit I think oh I'd like some more of that and the idea of having more control over our thoughts and more control over our experience is uh, understandably very appealing however that may not be the wisest assumption in fact I'm suggesting that it's definitely not a wise assumption and that this is one reason why it's so central and so profoundly important that we understand the point of going for refuge to the Buddha. The refuge, this is like, this is the priority. We say, I go for refuge. We bow down to the Buddha. I go for refuge. In other words, we're making the Buddha more important than anything else. The most important thing in all of reality is the Buddha, or the triple gem, actually. But here talking about the Buddha 
as that selfless, just-knowing awareness. That's, that's the refuge. That, that's what we train ourselves to have confidence in. That's what we orient our life towards. Selfless, just-knowing awareness. Not achieving more control over our thoughts, as appealing as that might be, or more control over our emotions, or more control in general, as appealing as that might be, we can be uh, setting ourselves up for a lot of disappointment. And so this assumption that we have that the path, the spiritual journey is going to unfold according to our hopes and expectations and preferences is something that we would be wise to just put to one side and say, my refuge, the thing that matters most to me is selfless just knowing awareness, is the Buddha. And we bow to the Buddha. Forget about how long it's going to take. Who knows? Who knows? And who knows what we're going to encounter on this journey? I've seen many people start out, and particularly in the monastery, people come to the monastery with great aspirations and tremendous faith and energy and enthusiasm, determination and confidence, and maybe they last for a while and then it all peters out and they disappear and never see them again. It's wiser to equip ourselves with the attitude that we don't know and we can't know. We can't know what karma we're carrying. We can't know what unreceived life we've got stored away within us. We can't know what lessons we're going to have to learn. And so let's equip ourselves, let's prepare ourselves for the unexpected, for everything. And so thankfully we have these teachings that the Buddha has given us and uh, identifying those capacities, those potentials that we have as human beings. You know, often talk about the, the various uh, faculties that we can, we can cultivate and identify and strengthen and nurture. So we have these things have been pointed out to us. And then also the encouragement from our teachers who have walked this path before us, like teachers who not just lived 2,600 years ago in India, but people who are around now that we can go to and we can talk to about this journey and learn from. And one of the things I'm bound to tell you is that there's all sorts of surprises in store. One of the really tricky things that this adventure is likely to oblige us to deal with is the phenomena whereby the closer we get to that which we feel obstructed by, the more resistance we feel. We might have the impression that I want to overcome all the hindrances, all the nirvanas, all the obstructions, all the pollutions. We may, part of us may genuinely want that and we may throw ourselves in the practice, the aspiration to realise that. However, the reality is the way the heart works, the way the mind works, is that those things that we've locked away in the basement in unawareness 
we did so because we didn't know how to handle them at the time. So we resisted reality. We didn't receive reality, live through it, and feel what we needed to feel and then let go of it. We resisted it, we rejected it, and we built up this denied life. So as we give ourselves into these teachings and take the medicine that the Buddha gave us and the medicine starts to work and we start to see, start to get close to these very aspects of our consciousness that we've been hiding from, running away from, hoping we never had to see again or deal with, the closer we get to them, the more difficult it feels. So it's good to be aware of that. This is a this is tricky because maybe in the beginning of practice we have a little familiarity with some initial benefits and joys of discipline of attention and and heightened awareness and sensitivity and then everything starts getting more difficult. What's going wrong here? Well, it's not necessarily a case that anything's going wrong at all. This is the way the path sometimes unfolds. Almost for everybody at some stage or other, they're going to find that as they approach that which needs to be let go, they really, really don't want to even see it. Not only do they not want to let go of it, they don't even want to see it, they don't even want to know about it. In fact, they want to run away. In fact, a lot of people do run away. That's what happens. People run away when they on this journey. They run away from what? It's not from the, you know, the good food that's being offered on the meditation retreat or the uplifting, encouraging, kindly uh, offered teachings. They're running away from suffering. Their own suffering. Suffering that wasn't received at a stage in life that they would have been able to receive it and so they locked it away. And so when the practice starts to bite when the medicine starts to work and then we're confronted with this old suffering and the opportunity is to receive it if we're not very careful if we're not rightly prepared for it we can judge it and say this shouldn't be happening practice is going wrong well not necessarily the case at all and we need to be careful when we when we um, label these obstructions, like even calling them obstructions or, or kilesa, or if you're a Christian, you call it sin. You know, the, we, we label these obstructions in awareness, and in the process, if we're not careful, we solidify them. And then when we solidify them, we cease to empathize. We compromise our sensitivity. We make it a thing. My problem with resentment, my problem with feeling betrayed, my kilesa with anger. And then we've solidified it, we've turned it into an obstruction, into a thing, and then the next thing we turn it into a problem. When in fact, actually what it is is a dynamic process. It's life. We start exercising concentration and steadiness of attention and mindfulness and bringing more light to bear and guess what we start to see what was there all along and 
we start to smell it and sense it and feel the heat of it and we don't like it and we want to run away from it. But we really need to prepare ourselves. This is what happens when we commit ourselves to the path of awareness, then that which obstructs awareness becomes apparent. So this is a helpful principle. It's, it's tricky, it can be very difficult, and absolutely not what we planned on. What we planned on was just getting more peaceful, more calm, more ability to control our mind and our thoughts and our feelings. And what we find we have to do, in fact, is actually slow down in our aspirations and develop a new set of skills, the skills that mean we can receive ourselves on another level. This stuff was always there, but we didn't know it. We were operating just in the attic. We didn't know what was in the basement. Playing with the computers in the attic, having a great time. But all the time there's all this stuff in the basement that we didn't know about. And when we come downstairs and we start to get more real and we take responsibility for cleaning up the whole house, taking responsibility for the whole house, then we find there's things that we hadn't appreciated. So another tricky thing, which maybe doesn't apply to everybody, but does apply to some, is that the initial enthusiasm for this path of practice is so powerful that an opening or a letting go is precipitated that we really hadn't planned on. You know, we had faith in the teachings, we, the theory, the, listened to what the teacher tells us and somehow it's ringing true. So yeah, 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 I want to do this. And so with enthusiasm and probably a good dose of greed as well, we throw ourselves into it and, and take the Buddha's medicine and, and the next thing we know, something amazing happens and there's an opening or a letting go that means we find ourselves with an altogether different perspective on experience. And it can be, for some people, really wonderful. It can be transformative in its possibility at the time. And yet what follows, because we were a little bit overly enthusiastic and perhaps not have done the right preparation, ideally speaking, we did what we did and we find ourselves where we find ourselves. However, with hindsight, we realize that we've actually made our lives much more difficult because now not only the nice bits got amplified, got highlighted, but also all our neuroses got amplified and got highlighted, got empowered. And so the problems that we thought we had, which might fade away with some time, suddenly became vivid and very painful. Maybe that's also something we hadn't planned on. We initial experience with these meditation exercises and keeping precepts and spiritual companionship gave us the impression that things were just going to get more lovely as we went along. However, the experience can be altogether different and it's very important that we prepare ourselves for the unexpected. And so how do we prepare ourselves for the unexpected? Well, thankfully, as I was saying, the, the Buddha has given us all these teachings and the teachers have pointed out the things that really matter. You know that 
example of when the Buddha was with a group of monks in the forest and, and um, picked up a bunch of leaves from the floor of the forest and asked them, which is great, all the leaves and all the trees in this forest, all these leaves that are in my hand. And the monks commented, obviously, the leaves uh, on the trees are much greater than all the, the few leaves in your hand. And the Buddha said, so it is, the truths that, that I know about are much greater than what I've taught about. However, what I've taught about is what matters, what makes a difference. This is also important to register. So paying attention to what our teachers, our guides, have highlighted as worthy of attention, worthy of emphasis, similar to how we might be working out you know, strengthening our own bodies. You know, you, if you find you're having trouble sitting meditation and your knees are painful and your back is sore and your breathing is not happening right and, and so you get this idea, what I need to do is do more I need to do more of those sideways bending postures in yoga and, and, and make my knees more flexible and, and then also I need to strengthen my back muscles. I'm going to do these isometric exercises to strengthen my back muscles and uh, it might do some good but it might also <laughs> make things a lot worse because in fact what you perhaps need to be doing is uh, developing the core muscles in your belly. You know, you're slouched over a computer all day long and you're muscles in your guts have become weak. Now those core muscles actually have a very significant contribution to make when it comes to sitting up straight, when it comes to breathing comfortably. If those muscles have not been developed properly, if they've you know, become too weak, then that's what we need to be focusing on. So this is again where uh, the experience of our teachers and our spiritual companions can point us in the right direction. We can start to notice where it is that we need to be paying attention. So we need upgrading, basically. Whenever we find ourselves challenged by something we didn't expect, something we find we're not prepared for, so okay, ready for an upgrade, upgrade of skills. Like Sila, it's always a good place to start. What state are my precepts in? Because if our commitment to precepts is not really firm, we're not, we don't really appreciate the place of impeccability, if we're still trying to get away with things and lying to ourselves and, and lying to others, and even in small ways, that lack of impeccability has an effect. It, it, it's a compromise. And maybe in the beginning we we can choose to take that on trust and then investigate it for ourselves. But it is important that we investigate it. Remember, remember that conversation with the Buddha and the Venerable Ananda and Ananda's asking the Buddha, what is the point of Sila? And the Buddha said, freedom from remorse. And why do monks have 227 precepts? Because it's a, it's a symbolic, well, they all matter in themselves, but in effect it symbolizes the need for impeccability or action of body and speech. So long as we're still compromising, what happens is we compromise our self-confidence. So upgrading sila and what we're working on there is self-confidence. Self-doubt, which is a great obstruction, source of terrible difficulty, 
can be addressed by paying closer attention to impeccability, to sila. Upgrading mindfulness, obviously, always. We can never have too much mindfulness. We might have too much energy. We might even have too much of the wrong sort of samadhi. Might have too much faith or might have too much motivation to inquire and to investigate. But of the five spiritual faculties, we can never have too much mindfulness. So looking at how well do we conduct our lives, not just when we're sitting meditation, like is the mind still wandering all over the place and, and thinking about this and thinking about that and losing touch with our body and dreaming. There's that, which is important. There's also just daily life. Like, how often do we say things that we end up regretting? Oops. Ouch. Did it again. Mindfulness is like turning up the light. Like, like you go into a dark room and you turn on the light and you've got a dimmer switch. If you, you, know, <laughs> if you only turn it up a little bit, well, you're quite likely to trip over the dog or slip on something that's left lying around on the floor. and So we turn the dimmer switch up. We can see more. And so if we're encountering difficulties and challenges on this journey and we don't feel sure how to handle, well, certainly upgrading mindfulness is, a, is a worthy of attention. Conscious composure, as I've talked about many times before, Indriya Sangwara, that restraint, again, along with mindfulness. You know, why do we keep saying things that we wish we didn't say or leaving things lying around or you know, forgetting to do things that we're supposed to be doing, you know, forgetting to ring our mother on her birthday? And, you know, it's not that I don't care about my mother. And why don't I value it enough? Why don't I remember it enough? Mindfulness and, and composure work together. The lack of the lack of composure, or the lack of Indriya uh, uh, Sangwara, is like I notice sometimes when I'm talking to somebody who's holding, I'm having a Skype call, or something, and they're holding their phone or their laptop on their lap, and they they keep moving it around all the time. That that movement, it's really difficult to follow the conversation and to stay connected, and that's similar when the the excessive untamed exuberance. It's not there's nothing wrong with the energy, there's nothing wrong with enthusiasm, but if it's untamed and uncontained and unmet, unknown, if we haven't really met ourselves in our enthusiasm and our vitality, for perfectly understandable reasons. In the culture we grow up in a lot of shaming for exuberance and enthusiasm and it's not necessarily in the case that we're all taught how to cultivate mindfulness and wise restraint, we're often just shamed into putting a lid on it. And that's regrettable. So we don't really know ourselves in our enthusiasm and our aliveness. And so we have this untamed restlessness and exuberance which can express itself in ways that are really unhelpful. So upgrading our conscious composure or indriya sangra and wise reflection. Again, I've talked about often, this is 
This is how we start to untangle the knots. Everybody's knots are different. We've all come to this practice with an accumulation of a great variety of experience and background, this life and previous lives. And when we start to deepen and investigate and bring light to that which we weren't previously aware of, we need to be able to ask the right kind of questions the right way. Here we're talking about we're talking about practice. We're talking about practicing Dhamma, not just theorizing about Dhamma. There's a big difference. It's a totally different dynamic. It's like the difference between a seismologist who's in, in a university library or looking on a computer and coming to understand earthquakes. You may have a very skilled level of competence and way of explaining earthquakes and the likelihood of them their occurring. But that experience is very different from being in a room that is shaking and books falling off the shelf. It's a totally different experience. Well, so it is with the theory of Dhamma and the practice of Dhamma. When we start to practice, we start to meet ourselves in ways that we could never have imagined before. The books start falling off the shelf. Our thinking is out of control. Our emotions feel like they're out of control. How do we handle it? Well, we, again, we have these teachings that the Buddha gave us, these skills for investing in. I like to refer to them as the, as the vectors of transformation. Like, for instance, the ten parami, which we'd be familiar with. Dana parami, sila parami, nikama parami, aditana parami, panya parami, metta parami, the, the ten parami. These, these vectors of transformation, if we understand them, then when we feel challenged, we can scan through this list and say, all right, this is what I need to be working on. Right. And if we don't understand them, well, then maybe we start working on the wrong thing. Like I was saying before, you, you start developing some muscles in your back when you really need to be developing muscles in your stomach. Maybe you start working on aditana parami or nekama parami on your making vows. I make a vow to not get up from my meditation cushion until I am fully enlightened. And then as a result you break your knees and have a nervous breakdown. That's, if you're working on that kind of aditana, that kind of, the vector of transformation that we call making vows or determinations, we need to approach it in a balanced way. And if we don't, then we can, in fact, throw ourselves more out of balance. And maybe what's called for is upekā, parami, or equanimity, or kindness, or generosity. A lot of us come to this practice without having had a lot of beautiful examples of embodied generosity. There's a kind of moralistic generosity where you, you think you should be generous and give things to this or that person. But there's not the generosity which is a spontaneous expression of gratitude and respect. Right? We've all received a huge amount from our parents and from our teachers who made massive sacrifices for our 
our benefit and do we dwell on that and do we are we able to feel gratitude and then spontaneously express it with generosity if we can't do that well that means that we're somehow we're actually uh, obstructed in that area we're limited we're we're weak you might have a really good car and have really nice upholstery on the seats and have really good brakes but if there's no petrol in the tank well you're just not going to get very far and so it is with this journey if we haven't developed these vectors of transformation that I'm talking about these these teachings these principles these these capacities that the Buddha and our teachers have pointed out to us that we might start out heading in the right direction but end up running out of juice so how do we prepare ourselves what helps and when we start to encounter the unexpected when practice doesn't go as planned what do we do about it well we see where do I need to upgrade is it maybe it's such a barami or the vector of honesty all of us grow up hiding behind this construct that we call personality not because we're bad it's just like that's what happens when there's not adequate awareness we encounter life with all its complexity and all its joys and all its sorrows and we don't have the wisdom uh, ourselves and we don't necessarily hear wisdom from others that show us the wise way, the skillful way the balanced way to move through life and so what happens is we develop coping strategies we learn to play games and we learn to basically tell stories to ourselves and that accumulates as the years go by and the next thing you know by about the age of seven years old we've got a personality and this personality we find out it can protect us if we hide behind it it can protect us from too much pain in life instead of meeting life with all its difficulties and all its challenges we play games and we pretend and so as the years go by we become more and more convinced that this personality this is the thing to depend on not life not awareness but personality we believe in personality if at some stage we have the good fortune to suffer enough at the same time as hearing the Buddha's teachings it starts to dawn on us well actually this storytelling business is not working and, and maybe faith is, is kindled within us that there is another way of living there is another way of, of approaching life so we start to take the Buddha's medicine we do the practices and what happens is the habitual lying to ourselves and hiding behind personality doesn't work so well anymore and we start having to own up to these things like you know like the story we tell ourselves like, I'm never going to die how ridiculous is that uh, but how many people are not telling themselves that story and the evidence of course is that every, most of us when we get a medical prognosis that we don't like we freak out I'm not saying we're looking for a negative medical prognosis of course not 
However, sooner or later, something like that is going to happen to all of us and we tend to go into shock because we've been telling ourselves a story. Or the story like, everybody likes me. Well, that, of course, is ridiculous. There's, there's nobody, not even the Buddha, was liked by everybody, but rather than facing the painful realisation that some people don't like me and really receiving that and feeling that and letting go of that, we tend to tell ourselves stories and we get around as if everybody likes me and then we find out that somebody doesn't like me and we get shocked by that. It shouldn't be a shock at all if we were living in harmony with reality. Or the tendency to be blaming. Blaming this person, blaming that person, blaming our parents, blaming astrological configuration, blaming the politicians, blaming the weather, blaming getting old, as if getting old was a crime. You know, getting old is like, that's as basic a law as there can be. Everything that's born gets old and fades out. That's, that's just a fact. And yet people can blame old age for things. So what is blaming all about? Well, when we're practicing and increasing the light of mindfulness and the steadiness of, of collectedness and developing these potentials that we have, start to recognize actually we were just kidding ourselves. So owning up to the stories we've been telling ourselves helps, makes a big difference. I mean, maybe we don't want to, actually, just to follow our old habits, that's the easiest. It's like, you know, like not doing exercises or eating sugar or you know, binge watching something on television. It's easy to do things that don't take much effort. However, if we're interested in seeing beyond the way things merely appear to be, to what the Buddha and the teachers have told us is real, then hopefully that interest will give rise to the energy that means we're willing to make the effort to go against these habits. And when it's apparent that we've been lying to ourselves about something, telling ourselves a story about something, say, thank you, put our hands together in Anjali. Thank you, thank goodness I realised that. may not be pleasant, a lot of it bound to not be pleasant. That's why we you know, pushed it away into unawareness in the first place. We didn't want to own up to it. However, in terms of practice, what helps, what makes a difference, is owning up to it. So again, as I said, you know, putting our hands together in Anjali and saying, thank goodness, I've started to see that. Welcoming it, even if it doesn't feel totally natural, helps. Of course, also, uh, formal meditation helps. We're all aware of this. And developing the skill in meditation practice is really worth investing in. And by skill here, I don't just mean willfulness. That's that's uh, a very limited, a very limited benefit. Finding different ways of disciplining attention. Something might work in the beginning and then it doesn't work later on. 
Maybe something worked in the beginning, didn't work, and then you go back to it again. Some meditation techniques are likely to emphasize more mindfulness, and others are perhaps going to encourage more collectedness or concentration. We need to look in our own case and see what works and what is needed. So finally also to mention something that's uh, tremendously helpful and that is Kalyanamitta or spiritual companions. That without spiritual companions we might think I know what the practice is, I know what I'm doing. A lot of people get that in the beginning. It's very normal. Confidence comes along and if we don't really have a perspective on the habit of clinging and how it spoils things, we cling to the confidence and and then it feels even better for a while. However, after a while, uh, things change as they always do and what happens is the confidence is replaced by doubt and then we cling to that and oops, So the wise thing to do is to prepare ourselves in advance uh, with those kind of companions, those spiritual friends, those kalyanamitta who are going to be available if we, if and when, probably when more than if. It's almost guaranteed that we will need to talk to people at some stage. Mm -hmm. So when we get ourselves into a pickle and we, we want or we need to be heard, we need to be seen for where we're at. Because right now where we're at, we don't know how to hear ourselves, we don't know how to receive ourselves, we don't know how to see ourselves. If we did know how to receive ourselves, really receive ourselves, we could let ourselves go and that would be done with it. But sooner or later all of us get to the point where we don't know how to do that. And this is where Kalyanamitta or spiritual companions are extremely beneficial. So with regards to this question about how long is it going to take, before we feel comfortable and having more control over our compulsive thinking mind. Personally, I have absolutely no idea, but more than that, I would encourage, don't even dwell on trying to have more control. Learn how to trust in the refuges. Learn how to trust in the Buddha, trust in selfless, just-knowing awareness. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Handamayang Dhamma Kataya Sadhu Karang Dadama Sayyaya